Good morning. Got some feedback going on a little bit. But not as bad as they're having over there. Did you hear that screaming? <laughs> so I want to welcome you if you're visiting today. You're in the preaching service, and we are going to continue in our worship this morning. We feel the highest form of worship is the study of God's Word. And we're diving right back into chapter 9. We're going to finish up chapter 9 to set us up for chapter 10 next week. So uh, this will be chapter 9 of the book of Acts. And we're going to be covering just 11 verses, 32 through 43. And if you would stand, we're going to read those verses and stand out of reverence and respect for God's holy and inspired word. This is chapter 9, verse 32 through 43. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Heavenly Father, we are uh, so blessed to have your word. We pray you are blessed by the reading and the study of your word this morning. You may be seated. We now leave those years of bold evangelism that we saw from the monumental conversion of Saul of Tarsus, just as his ministry was gaining steam, with Luke's narrative now turning to speak of Peter. Yet in our brief time with Paul, it's amazing to see what fierce opposition he engendered from all sides. Remember in verse 23 from last week, we saw how the Jews wanted to kill him. And then verse 29, we saw how the Greeks, the Hellenists, they wanted to kill him. With enemies like this, we know it wasn't the health, wealth, prosperity gospel that he was preaching. And despite the increasing opposition from all quarters, look at the blessed state of this early church in verse 31 from last week. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You know, only in God's providence would the one man that they thought was going to destroy the church be the one man 
who would be spearheading its amazing expansion. Now, we would have expected Dr. Luke to continue with Paul's bold ministry and the blessed peace and expansion of the church. As believers, we want to hear more about this most unlikely convert, Saul of Tarsus. We're so encouraged by his most dramatic conversion, the most dramatic conversion in Scripture. A deranged man who goes from the leader of the group that stoned Stephen and even hunted down men and women of the way, believers, to then being God's chosen instrument to carry the name of Christ before the Gentiles. Yet our attention is turned this morning in the last section of Acts to two stories, not about Paul, but about Peter. We actually aren't introduced to Paul again until the 13th chapter. So what's going on in this portion of Scripture? Well, when we analyze the book of Acts, we see the first 12 chapters. We see Peter dominant. And then from 13 to 28, we see Paul step forward as the central figure. And what we see in these middle chapters, 9 through 12, is a blending with Peter receding and then Paul coming forward. Yet, this isn't just an overlapping of Peter, who was called to the circumcision, the Jews, and Paul to the uncircumcision, the Gentiles, but rather, as Luke's narrative proves, Peter and Paul were not on two different missions, but were actually one in their doctrine and their work. As we shall see with these two stories of Peter, today with Aeneas and Tabitha, and then next week with Matt's exposition of Peter going to Cornelius in Caesarea, that it was actually Peter who had the keys to the Gentiles. And now was turning those keys that would open the door to the Gentiles as they took the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jesus commissioned Peter back in Matthew 16 to initiate this very task. It reads, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." And that's how we end up with Luke turning to this familiar figure, Peter. Not in Jerusalem, not in Samaria with John, but he's all alone in Judea. First turning the key in Lydda with Aeneas and then turning the next key in Joppa with Tabitha. To put into motion the pivot point of the greatest transition in the early church which you're going to have to be here next week to hear about. But remember, the book of Acts isn't just a spiritual transition. It is a geographical transition. Spiritually, from Judaism to Jesus Christ, from the law to grace. Remember, as John 1 records, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Jesus Christ. But this is also a geographical transition. Geographical from Jewish ground to Gentile ground, from Jerusalem 
to Antioch. Emblematic of the picture of Peter preaching. It's hard to say. Emblematic of the picture of Peter preaching. But him preaching, uh, you remember, in Jerusalem to the men of Israel at Pentecost. And then later Paul preaching to the men of Athens at the Areopagus in Greece. Preaching the same message. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yet it was to Peter that the keys to the Gentiles would be given by Christ to open the door. And it was to Paul Christ gave the revelation of the mystery of the Gentiles. Romans 16 records the revelation of the mystery was kept secret for long ages. Colossians 1 records the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And what was this mystery? Hidden God. What was that? Ephesians 3 sums it up with three amazing promises to the believer. Ephesians 3 records, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and they're partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is another one of those verses with so much truth wrapped in such brevity. First is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. We're not co-heirs. That's very important. That's a whole nother sermon. But we are fellow heirs with the Jew. It's stunning that we as Gentiles are equal in position and title as the Jew. We have legal share in the inheritance. Isaiah 60 records, and nations, and remember, anytime you see nations in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it always refers to the Gentiles. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The second mystery, the Gentiles are members of the same body as the Jew. Again, stunning. Up to this point in the early church, recorded in the book of Acts, Israel and the nations are in their respective places, separate. But now, Jew and Gentile would be brought together into the same body. Colossians 3 records, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now the third mystery is that we are partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, inconceivable that we as Gentiles would be partakers of the Jewish Messiah through the gospel along with the Jew. An Orthodox Jew back then and an Orthodox Jew today would laugh us to scorn at this idea that the privilege and the promise of the Jewish Messiah being offered to Gentiles Yet Colossians 1 records, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Peter was not decreed by God to unveil these mysteries not yet revealed, but rather it was Paul. Yet it was to Peter that would be decreed to turn the keys that opened the door to the Gentiles first. And that is what we see Peter doing in these two accounts this morning with Aeneas and Tabitha. And they stand as primers, foreshadowing 
The greater leap from the Jewish early church to the greater Gentile world. But before taking up with Aeneas and Tabitha, let's look at two clues of this great transition. One is a subtle prophecy by Jesus, and the other is a subtle change in how believers are identified. So the first one, a prophecy that Jesus recorded in John 10 concerning his sheep. He said that he would take his sheep out of the Jewish sheepfold and he would lead them to his one flock in Christ. Now, these are two distinctly different terms used in this section by Jesus Christ. First, the word sheepfold, where the good shepherd calls out his own. It records in John 10, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now the other word is the word flock which the good shepherd gathers his sheep into. Further in John 10, it reads, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. A fold and a flock are two vastly different principles of gathering sheep together. Two totally different words in the Greek. And our Lord is intentional, intentional, intentional about using these two words to show us the transition of his own out of the sheepfold into the flock. The first term for fold or sheepfold is a circumference without a center, whereas the second term flock is a center without a circumference. Now, what does that mean? It means the Jewish sheepfold keeps the sheep together by an external force. A circumference, the law that surrounds the sheep. It's a wall. It keeps the sheep together to make the sheepfold. They have no center, just a circumference. The wall that surrounds them. The flock, on the other hand, has no circumference. There's no law to hold us in, is there? Instead, we have a center, and that's Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. He holds us together because we follow Him. In every Christian, a work is done by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, whereby we are attracted to the Good Shepherd. And as a result, we want to be with Him. We listen to His voice, and we follow Him. And drawn by our attraction to Him, we are gathered together as sheep. We have no need of a wall or a border representing the law to hold us in. So there's no circumference, just a center. Jesus Christ. And such is the liberty of his sheep in Christ. Peter had the tasks of turning the keys to open the door to the sheepfold in the name of Christ through the gospel and bringing out a people, Jews and now Gentiles, to be gathered into what? Into Christ's flock where there's no wall. There's no circumference. There's just a center. The second feature that indicates this transition is how believers are referred to. We, we also see this start to change in this as part of Acts. Jewish believers are generally called disciples by Luke in the early part of Acts. A carryover from the days when our Lord was still on the earth and believers were called disciples of Christ. But now the early church 
we see new words start to emerge. Words like brethren, words like saints, words that we find so frequently in Paul's writings concerning the Gentile churches. Indeed, the first mention of the word saints is here in the book of Acts in connection with Saul. You remember when Ananias said, how much evil Saul has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Now, the term saints is found only four times in the book of Acts, two in connection with Peter's ministry and two in connection with Paul's ministry. But what's striking is the uses of the word saints in connection with Peter's ministry is that they're centered on the healing of Aeneas and the raising to life of Tabitha. In other words, the change in terms was indicating that the time was now ripe for Peter and Paul to transition to truly Gentile ground. With that as introduction, let's look at point one in your outline. The first key, the healing of Aeneas. This is verses 32 to 35. As a refresher, it said, Now as Peter went there, here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now, a couple of observations about Peter. This is the heart of a true evangelist. We're familiar with Peter standing before great crowds in Jerusalem. But not here. Peter's all alone. And he's obedient to the calling to visit believers throughout Judea. Described in verse 1 as going here and there among them all. Surely with a heart towards discipling and building up the churches. Peter was also noted for being on the move. He was a fisher of men. He was, he was not stagnant. And it's not coincidental that God does his mightiest work with those evangelists that are already on the move. They're already busy with the work of the Lord. Verse 32 also tells us he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda, coming down referring to descending from the heights of Jerusalem. And he comes down to Lydda, also called Lod. Lod, what a strange name. Lod in the Old Testament. And it lies 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem on the road to Joppa, which lies on the coast. So Lydda today is actually the site of the Ben-Gurion airport. So if you've ever flown into Israel, uh, I think there's a few I know have, um, then you have flown into Lydda, which is near Tel Aviv. Lydda is predominantly a Jewish area, which makes Peter's interaction with Aeneas even more interesting. The verse reads, And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. So letter A in your outline is the mystery of Aeneas the helpless. And first we have to note that Aeneas presents as an unbeliever, referred to not as a believer or a disciple, like Tabitha will be, but as a man named Aeneas. Indeed, as a rule, believers are not the objects of miraculous apostolic healing power. However, they are often the instruments of it. Timothy is exhorted by the Apostle Paul, for example, to not to use ordinary means, to use a little wine for the sake of his stomach and his frequent ailments. And even Trophimus, the apostle, was left sick at Miletus instead of God healing him. Yet perhaps most interesting is the name of this paralyzed man, Aeneas. 
Aeneas was a Roman name. And it's the same name of a Trojan prince who escaped the sack of Troy. And according to Roman legend, Aeneas and his followers founded Rome and became the embodiment of Roman virtues. As an exemplary leader of his people, a devoted father and son, he demonstrated appropriate devotion to one's family, country, and mission. In other words, Aeneas was a hero to the Greeks and to the Romans, and he couldn't be more Gentile. Now, why is this so important? It's important because this man's physical healing becomes an important precursor to the coming encounter Peter's to have, which you're going to hear about next week, in Caesarea with a Gentile, a Roman. And not just a Roman, but a Roman centurion and his family. Cornelius couldn't be more Roman. Cornelius couldn't be more Gentile. A Roman who, as Matt will be covering next week in chapter 10, is described as a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. There are no coincidences in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit's leading Peter to this man named Aeneas prefigures a greater transition. A transition that will change the world. A transition that was predestined before time began. A transition that would reveal the mystery of the church. A transition that would feature first Peter and then later Paul picking up the mantle of the gospel and taking it to the world. A transition that would involve both Jew and Gentile in a brand new way. In a transition that involves all of us here today intimately. The Holy Spirit leads Peter into two miraculous encounters with two contrasting individuals who couldn't be more different. In fact, the only thing it seems they had in common was their utter helplessness and their utter hopelessness. In fact, Aeneas was a man who was an unbelieving Gentile and Tabitha was a believing, a believing Jew, even called a disciple. The only female in the New Testament described as being a disciple. Aeneas, paralyzed, could not work for God. Aeneas was powerless, just as the Gentile peoples were powerless and could not work for God. Tabitha, now dead, on the other hand, was known for being full of good works and acts of charity, which the peoples of Israel could do and did do for God. But Aeneas, powerless and hopeless, is healed and has power to rise and make his bed. It was his bed that represented that which held Aeneas captive for eight years. Aeneas, now restored, would finally find freedom from that which held him captive. The message of his healing, by extension, points to the Gentiles, who through faith in Christ would be given power over the things that once had power over them through their salvation. Peter in verse 34 says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Peter's command echoes the words of Christ in Mark 2 with the healing of the paralytic man early in his ministry saying, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And you'll notice it was not in Peter's power. It was rather Jesus Christ heals you. And don't you love Peter here? who was so confident in himself, yet now is confident 
only in the power of God to heal. Just when he was, just as he was when he was surrounded by the multitudes at the temple. You remember back early in the book of Acts, in Acts 3, by the beautiful gates at the hour of prayer, when he told the lame beggar, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Here in Lydda, as there, he is absolutely confident the Lord would heal immediately, powerfully, and completely. And he does. Look at verse 34. It says, and he immediately rose. And the result of this miraculous healing, verse 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. And here we have letter B in your outline. The mission of Aeneas, the healed. Now with this city of Lydda and the broad plain of Sharon being so large, we can only assume that Aeneas didn't just sit at home. Because many people saw him. It seems this once helpless and hopeless man was eager to share with others the hope that he had within him. And that hope pointed to Jesus Christ as his deliverer, as his savior. For he was healed by Jesus Christ. Remember, it's always the physical miracle authenticating the spiritual message that has the power of salvation. And so Aeneas the Gentile a type and symbol of the Roman and Greek world, outside the law, void of good works for the Lord, in a hopeless, helpless state, is miraculously regenerated by Jesus Christ physically and spiritually through Peter. Next, we come to point two in your outline, the second key. Peter raises a disciple at Joppa. This is verses 36 to 42. Starting with letter A, the mystery of Tabitha. The deceased. Now, we've already looked at the great contrast that Tabitha presents as opposed to Aeneas. Primarily that she was a Jew. She was a worker for the Lord, full of good works and acts of charity. But now she was dead after falling ill. She was placed in an upper room, as verse 37 indicates. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Again, indicating this is a Jewish community because this was the normal Jewish practice of maintaining a corpse for three days between between death and burial, which is very much unlike what they did in Jerusalem with Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they had to bury them right away. Another indication that this was a Jewish community is indicated in the next verses. It reads, since Lydda was near Joppa, The disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to an upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, turning to the body. He said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Here, Tabitha's friends, they knew of Peter being a Jewish community. This all makes sense. That's why they sent two men southeast to Lydda to summon Peter. 
Remember Aeneas the Gentile? He didn't know. He didn't seek out Peter. Remember, Peter found him. Speaking of the Gentile separation outside Judaism. Now, Peter's quick response and actions once he's summoned reminds us of how our Lord responded to the illness and death of Jairus' daughter in Mark 5. It reads, And while he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. He put them all outside, took the child's father and mother and those who were with them and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. So many similarities, an unfortunate death of one so loved, the weeping and wailing from the mourners, the clearing of the room, the simple command, arise. As a result, the perfect, complete restoration of life. It's not a resurrection. Very important. It's not a resurrection. Since Jairus' daughter and Tabitha would die a second time. Yet Tabitha, before being raised to new life, represents in type the hopeless state of the nation of Israel. Even more hopeless than Aeneas in his paralysis. Tabitha, like Israel, previously had good life, had good works, acts of charity, but by now both had zero life with Tabitha's physical state representing what Israel had become spiritually. Not only hopeless, but no spiritual life. Jesus himself condemned what Judaism had become. This is how he began his ministry. You remember his first miracle at Cana, bringing those lifeless ceremonial water pots that represented dead Judaism? What's he do? He brings those to life with new wine. Then he cleared his father's house, publicly condemning what they had turned it into, a money-making enterprise, turning his father's house into a den of thieves. Jesus condemned dead Judaism for rejecting and killing the prophets and for not even believing Moses, who spoke of him coming. Then Judaism confirmed their abject spiritual void by their rejection of the great I Am, the Son of God, their own Messiah, by having Him crucified. And then, even post-resurrection and post-ascension, into the first five years of the early church, we see dead Judaism now in rejection to the gospel message of a resurrected Messiah. So here was Tabitha's death, reflecting that very reality, reality of Judaism's Spiritual demise. And here is Peter before Tabitha's corpse, eager to follow in his master's footsteps. We see the total obedience and faith here in Peter. And of course, as with Aeneas, Peter knows 
who is the true healer, who is the restorer of life. And that is why, unlike in the account of Jesus and Jairus' daughter, where Jesus is the light of the world, he is the life of the world, he has the power in his voice to command life from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. We see Peter instead kneel down and pray first to mediate life to Tabitha, showing that the Lord Jesus is still at work as the very author of life. Verse 40 reads, But Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she stood up, sat up. Peter then responds this miracle of the Lord in verse 41, And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. What a precious picture to see Tabitha presented alive to the church. And he became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord, verse 42 records. So we see the witness of her raising from the dead becomes well known in Joppa and leads many to believe in the Lord. Just as the healing of Aeneas caused many to turn to the Lord in Lydda and Lydda and Sharon. These two summaries show the synonymous character of these two expressions of coming to faith. One turn to the Lord and the other one believe in the Lord, meaning the same whether Jew or Gentile. But what a witness this was, the raising of Tabitha, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. In her death, she represented dead Israel, just as Aeneas in his paralysis represented the powerless Gentile nations. But both emerge from hopeless situations. There was no hope for Aeneas, no hope for Gentiles who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, just as there was no hope for Tabitha. There was no hope for the nation of Israel who was spiritually dead. Yet here's the big question. In light of this great transition that Peter is foreshadowing, what do Aeneas and Tabitha represent in their new life? Freed from disability and freed from death. Put another way, as Peter turns the keys to open the door to the kingdom, what are we to see in the healing of Aeneas? And what are we to see in the raising to life of Tabitha? Well, in Aeneas, we see the power of life. Jesus Christ, the light of the world given to Gentiles. The Gentiles who were once far off would be grafted in to the blessing. Just as Simeon prophesied in Luke when he held the infant Jesus in his arms. It reads, Now, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Right there, we have Aeneas possessing Christ as a light for a revelation as a Gentile. And we have Tabitha possessing Christ to give glory to his people Israel. And right here in the early church is the start of the great transition. We see in the raising of Tabitha a Jewish remnant made alive to Christ, made alive to eternal life. Yet what do we see as we take one more look at, back at that upper room? We see genuine weeping and wailing. 
It is as if the widows were saying, But Peter, she must be restored to life. For she has done so many good deeds, she doesn't deserve to die. Their appeal reminds us of Israel's pleas over the centuries, doesn't it? Exclaiming, But we are your chosen people. We are your treasured possession. We don't deserve to die. The nation of Israel was called, after all, by the Lord himself, mine elect. They had it all, didn't they? What does is, what is Paul say in, in Romans 9? They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But now the chosen people were dead spiritually. So dead, in fact, they rejected their own Messiah. And here Tabitha was dead. And with her death and her raising back to life, it's at a critical point in the transition of the church. Now it is true, Tabitha is a favorite go-to among topical preachers. When they need a topic to try and motivate their people to get involved, to serve in the church, out comes the sermon. Ten ways to serve like Tabitha. Well, first of all, praise the Lord, we don't have that problem here. Our body practices every member ministry. We're so blessed by so many among us that faithfully use their gifts for the building of the body. And secondly, Tabitha's good deeds and acts of charity should not be the big takeaway. If we truly seek to glorify God and not be so focused on man, then the big takeaway with Tabitha is God is sovereign and His timing is perfect. And God has sovereignly orchestrated the healing of Aeneas and the raising to life of Tabitha at this moment in the early church, recorded here in the book of Acts, to signal the coming rise of the Gentiles into the church prefigured in Aeneas and to signal the rise of a Jewish remnant into the church prefigured in Tabitha. But even speaking of the future, this raising to life will happen for the nation of Israel still alive. For God is not done with Israel. The Jews will open their eyes like Tabitha and be presented before the saints. The way in which this takes place is suggested by Tabitha's name, which means gazelle, an animal capable of a sudden leap. The scripture itself agrees with this. In Isaiah 66, it reads, Shall a nation be brought forth in a moment? Most assuredly it shall. Israel shall leap like a gazelle out of death into life from the valley of dry bones to the blessing of the kingdom. As Israel, as Ezekiel had prophesied, it reads, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. He said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and you will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. 
And as I prophesied, there was a sound. Behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. The character of this sudden action is also given to us in Zechariah 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then the next chapter in Zechariah, on that day there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. You see, God is sovereign in the conversion of future Israel. And God is sovereign in the building of His church recorded right here in Acts. So now we come to letter B in your outline, the mission of Tabitha the delivered. And again, must, we must be clear the meaning of this raising from the dead, prefigured in Tabitha and the resulting believing in the Lord by so many. And that is her new life and those, that, those Jews that followed her witness stand as a symbol of the remnant of Israel in the church that's saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Tabitha and Aeneas together in the same body, indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, connected to the same head, Jesus Christ. Gentiles brought into the same body as the Jews. That is what the church in Acts is transitioning to. This was the mystery veiled in the Old Testament that no one saw coming. This was the will of God, the plan of God for his church. No distinctions. Peter tells us in Ephesians 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here, through the obedience of the Apostle Peter, God has lavished his grace upon a Gentile in a Jew to unite all things in him. How? Through his blood. Why? To make known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose and according to the riches of his grace. Did you get that? His blood, his will, his purpose, his grace. Beloved, there's everything right about doing good works. That's the fruit of our salvation. But don't miss in the healing of Aeneas and the raising to life of Tabitha, a sovereign God who has used these two, one a Jew, one a Gentile, to signal the great coming transition in the building of his church. And that transition would begin, would bring Gentiles in, and it would begin to unveil the mystery hidden in God, with God using Peter to unlock this mystery. 
a church of Jews and now Gentiles. And the flashpoint to bringing that light of revelation to the Gentiles would again be marked by Peter, by the way of a Gentile Roman family in Caesarea. Finally, we see Peter in our last verse slowly transitioning away from the legalism of Judaism, even being in the presence of dead animals, indicating that he was not overly sensitive about the Jewish purity laws. It reads, And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Clearly God had more work to do with Peter. We know that's coming, right? But what Peter had started in reaching out to the Gentiles, and most notably in his next stop in Caesarea, would begin an unstoppable movement of God that would echo through the centuries and touch every corner of the, of the world. Peter would soon pass the torch to Paul, who was specially chosen as Ananias, as God told Ananias. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul, when writing to the Ephesians, put it this way concerning his commission. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. God decreed the mystery. God decreed the transition to the Gentiles. God decreed the healing of paralyzed bodies. God decreed the raising of dead bodies. He decreed everything perfectly to build his church, to call out a bride, including Aeneas and those in Lydda and Sharon and including Tabitha and those in Joppa. The question is, have you missed your transition out of the sheepfold of this world into the blessed flock of Christ? Are you in his flock, in the care of the good shepherd? Or are you paralyzed like Aeneas? Or worse, are you dead like Tabitha, alone in the sheepfold of this world, a sheep without a shepherd, or worse, under the influence of thieves and robbers of this world. They will tempt you, social media, the culture. Here you'll find true fulfillment. Here you'll find true contentment. Here you'll find true affirmation. Here you'll find true peace. What they won't tell you is when the world is done with you and they will be done with you, you'll be left spiritually bankrupt, leaving you as a shell of a man and a shell of a woman. You may have a big title. You may have a big job. You may have a big bank account. You may have nice vacations. You may have lots of accolades, lots of follows on social media, however that works. You may have all the things the world is tempting you with, all the things that your friends think are important, but eventually, eventually you will find it all to be empty. And worse, your soul will be wasted. Never satisfied. You'll be like a junkie, always looking for the next high, always searching, but never finding true peace. Jesus Christ knows you have no peace. He knows your heart is unstable like water. He knows the hearts of all men and women. 
But remember, God is close to the brokenhearted and He crushes those and those crushed in spirit and He saves those crushed in spirit. There are many here that have been crushed in spirit. Amen? That God has, God has called them into His flock, but only from the narrow path and only through the narrow door and only on our hands and our knees and only in pride-swallowing surrender to a holy God who died for our sin and gave us life. Let not the wrath of God be awakened against you. This is the morning to surrender. Repent of your sins and put all your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to have new life in Christ. And you, as with Tabitha, your eyes will be opened and you will be presented alive to the church. You know why? Because you're alive to Christ. And we will rejoice along with the angels in heaven. Amen? Well, let's pray as the music team makes their way up. Heavenly Father,